0: Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about the culture of Living Hope Family Church. Because I think it's really important. This is something we do annually. This will be the third time that I've gone through this. But I think it's really important to know who we are as a church, what our vision is as a church, the kind of culture that we're developing here at Living Hope Family Church. Uh, The reason I do it annually is because I think it's really easy to lose sight of what you're trying to accomplish. As time goes by, things come up, you get distracted. And I don't want to be distracted. I want to be a church that's serving God the same way that we intended from the beginning. And the culture, all culture is, is the behaviors and beliefs and characteristics of a particular social, ethnic, or age group. It's just our characteristics, our beliefs. It's who we are as a church. One, I think if you're going to belong to a church, you should know what they believe instead of just showing up on Sunday. We want to know what's going on. We want to be a part of it. The truth is, we're not actually just here to warm a chair on Sunday mornings. We're here to be part of a living, breathing church that we can reach this community, this city of Morana. You know, there is, I, I was talking to another pastor last week, and he said it's somewhere between 70 and 90% of the people that live in this community don't go to church. They don't know God. And that's amazing to me. There's so many people out there that have no hope. And we have hope, and we can can give it to them. We can share the gospel with them. And that's actually part of our vision, part of our culture here at Living Home Family Church is to evangelize, to equip, and to empower. And what we mean by that, to evangelize, is we want to go out there and reach the lost. We want to tell people about Jesus, bring them in, let them know this treasure that we have in earthen vessels. And then we want to not just evangelize. You know, there's too many churches out there that are just going out and making converts. The the, the kingdom of heaven doesn't need more converts. We need disciples. And that's the next part. We want to equip people to do the same thing, to reach the lost, to equip them, that they can learn their Bible, that they can understand that the Holy Spirit is at work inside of them. And then we want to empower them to go out and do the same thing. You know, it doesn't do any good that if we bring them in and we train them up, but if we don't actually send them out to do something, then we've missed the boat again. We belong to a larger organization, which is a fellowship of churches called Praise Chapel International, and it's uh, it's not a governing body; it's just a group of churches that are together that want to with the same like-minded vision. And uh, their vision, their 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 statement is to win, build, sin which is awfully close to what ours is, evangelize, equip, and power. We want to win the lost. We want to build them up and send them out. And that's part of our culture as a, as a church. So today specifically, I want to spend some time talking about that we are a people saved by grace. And what I mean by that is that salvation is a free gift. If you're trying to work towards your salvation, if you're trying to do the right things to get into God's graces, you're missing the boat. I'll just tell you right now, I can save you a whole lot of time. You can't be good enough to be right with God. But thank God the story doesn't end there, right? Because Jesus died on the cross to make us whole, that we could be right with God. It's a free gift. And in in line with that, we have to understand that we are loved by God. We are a people that God loves so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. But I think right now, particularly in our society, we have this vision of God who's stoic and he's up there with his brows furled and he's got a big stick and he's just waiting people to come on, mess up. And he wants to hit them with a stick. But the truth is, that's not what our God's like. He sent his son to die for us, to pay that price, to pay that penalty. He loves us so much. And the truth is, he didn't owe us, he didn't have to do it, but he did it out of love. The next thing, part of being saved, is we have to understand that we are made brand new. When you get saved, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm probably talking to a bunch of long-time Christians out there, and we're, we're preaching to the choir a little bit, but when you get saved, you're made brand new inside. Brand spanking new. You're not who you used to be. The old man is dead and gone. Salvation is a miracle. It's not just a, a change of behavior. If all we have is changed behavior, we're missing something. But you're made brand new inside. It's not just about forgetting your sin and getting it forgiven, but it's a, it's a complete spirit transfer inside of you. Your old man gets moved out, and the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. You're born again. And the next really important thing that I want to deal with today is that it, it can't be earned. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift, 100%. It's free. Now the truth is, you still have to receive it, but it is free. If I were to come and pull out my wallet and say, "Jim, this is my—it's yours. My wallet is yours. I, you know, Jim's got to come up and take my wallet if he wants it. I've given it to him. It's in. But if he doesn't come receive it, then it's still not in his possession. The same thing is for salvation. It's been given. And you really can't have my wallet either. It's—it's it's mine. <laughs> that was just an illustration. But when, we, when we, uh, we have to receive salvation. It's a gift, but we still have to receive it. Amen? So let's go ahead and get started this morning. In Luke twelve six through 7 it says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. I want you guys to know this morning that you are valuable in the sight of God. You mean something to him. You know, how do you know if something is valuable to somebody? They tend to know a lot about stuff that, that the stuff is valuable to you, right? I'm a bivocational pastor, and I, I do IT work for a living. I'm a network engineer, and I, I'm a computer guy. I like computers. You know how you can tell that I like computers and that they're to, valuable to me? It's because you can ask me anything about them, and I can, I can tell you about them. You know, if there's a person that's, that, that boats or yachts are value to them, you know what? They learn about boats. They learn about those things, and they can tell you about them. If, if hunting is valuable to somebody, you can ask them any question, and they know about those things. Whatever is valuable to something, it's apparent because they know about those things. And right here, not only does God know stuff about you, He knows everything about you. It says that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, I realize that God has an easier time of keeping track of that with some of us. But nonetheless, he knows every hair on your head. He knows everything about you. You could go up and ask God a question about you, and he knows everything because you are valuable to him. You know what else you can tell what's valuable to a person? By looking at their checkbook. Checkbook. You take a look at their check register. Nowadays, you look at their bank statement online. Or well, I don't even, We don't have on the shelves. My wife's got a, a checkbook. I don't ever touch the thing. But we don't keep a register. We do everything online. And you can tell what's important to us by looking at where we're putting our money. You know, if if somebody is really into their car and all their money goes into their car, you can tell that's pretty important. That's why they say that the, the last thing on a man to get saved is his wallet. And you can tell if you... If, if you look through someone's register and they love God and they're honoring God, they're going to invest into the kingdom of heaven. And you guys can all, you don't have to get nervous. I'm not, taking another, I'm not going to receive another offering this morning. But the reality is, if you, if you look at someone's checkbook, you can tell what's important to them, what they spend money on. Well, you know, if you took a look at God's register, you want to know what he spent for you? His son. God gave to us far more than we'll ever give in return. Amen. And the truth is, is your value is not based on what you look like or what you've done or the different things. You know, there was a, if I took out this $20 bill right here, it's a relatively clean $20 bill, right? It's, it's a nice looking, and I asked anybody in here if they wanted it. Anybody want it? Anybody would want this 20 Everybody wants it, right? What, what about now? Now it's all crumpled and nasty, would anybody still want it? Really? What if I taken? I got to hit it before I missed it. Anybody would still want it? Yeah. I'm not giving you guys $20. You guys need to. Why you guys keep wanting my stuff? You want my wallet and my money? I don't know what's going on here. The thing is, that's how God sees us as well. It doesn't matter if you look perfectly primped and clean on the outside. It doesn't matter if you're crumpled up and been smashed into the dirt. God still loves you, and you're valuable to Him no matter what. And the next scripture up here is Zephaniah 3.17. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love, and He will exalt over you with loud singing. You know, most of us think of God as this, this quiet guy up in heaven. He's calm and reserved. But the scripture says that God is singing loudly over you. You know, we, we play music here that's a little more upbeat most of the time. And, and we're a little bit louder than some other churches. And, and we want to get into our worship. We want to clap. We're working on getting some people with rhythm in this church where we can actually get some clapping going. So if you know anybody that can the, the claps real good, send them on in. We're, we're working on that. But we want to be a people that get a little bit loud and worship Jesus with all that we have. And I want you to know that if you don't don't like it loud, you're going to be in for a surprise when you get to heaven because the the scripture says that it's like roaring thunder in heaven, the worship for him. And even God is loud when he sings over you. In the New American Standard, the the translation says that he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Did you know that God loves you that much? That he rejoices of you with shouts of joy. I don't know about you, but that's that's amazing to me. Who am I that God would love me that much? But the scripture clearly says that he cares about me like that. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. He so it was for the joy set before Him. Jesus went to the cross because of you. Because of the joy He felt for you. You were worth it to Him. Amen? Amen. The next thing we need to understand is that God cares about us. Not only does He love us, but He cares about us. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. And then in Psalms eighty six fifteen it says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God cares for you. You know, anxiety is distress caused by basically a fear of loss. If you think about any time that you were anxious in your life, it's because you were, you were afraid that you weren't going to have something or you were going to lose something. But God cares for us. The reason the scripture says cast all your anxieties on him is because he loves us. He's going to make sure that we're taken care of. Does that mean that you're never going to have problems? No. You're going to have problems. you guys. I've heard, I've said it up here many times, that one of the greatest disservices we can do for Christians is to tell them if you get saved, everything's going to be just all lollipops and gumdrops after that. Because it's not. Matter of fact, as a Christian, you're probably going to deal with some stuff that you wouldn't have had to do if you wouldn't have got saved. Because the enemy is going to to put a target on your back. It's funny, as I, as I sit up here and I've, I've ministered to people and, and we watch them give their lives to God and we see blessing pour in from one side, but we see resistance rise up on the other side just as hard. The enemy doesn't want you to serve your God. He wants to do everything he can to push you away. But the scripture says, you know what? Cast all those anxieties on him because he cares for you. God is going to get you through no matter what is coming your way. There is no problem that is so big that you are going to be completely overwhelmed and submerged and destroyed because God will be there for you. It may be tough. You might have some hard times. It might not be fun for a little while, but God will get you through the other side. Amen? And because of that, a Christian should have no fear. The Scripture says that that I have not given you a spirit of fear, but of sound mind and power. We shouldn't have a spirit of fear. God's not giving it to us. Because we can trust in Him. A Christian's confidence rests in the fact that Christ is genuinely concerned for His welfare. Matthew 6.25-26 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You know, I think one of the, the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? One of the most dangerous things we can do is begin to, to beat ourselves up and think that God hates us and God's mad at us, particularly if we're going through a, a tough situation. Because then instead of relying on him, we begin to wallow in our our self-pity and our doubt and our fear. And that's when the the enemy has control over you. That's when he makes it worse for you. But if we will put our faith and our trust in our God, then he's going to take care of us. You know, I've I've heard it said that that we should stop telling our God about our problems, but instead start, start telling our problems about our God. Amen? Because he's bigger than any of that. Then he says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know what? His love is abundant. It cannot be exhausted. You know, he's, he's unlike us as parents. Most of you guys have had kids in the room. You ever, you ever get a little bit tired of your kids sometimes? You had some, some, some points where you were fed up? I know I have. And you, oh man, they can just push you over the edge, and you just am I, I'm the only one that's this gone through that. No, but you know what? God is abundant in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is merciful and gracious. That never runs out. You know, God never gets impatient with you. God never stops loving you. You can never push God away. You know. With my kids, there are times, I've never stopped loving them, but there are a few moments, brief moments, where they made me not like them all the time. <laughs> Except for you, Haley. I like you all the time. And you too, Blake. Allie's in the other room, so we'll just, we'll just go with it with her. <laughs> but the truth is, he never gets tired, he never gets impatient. His love for us is never exhausted. And you know what? There's enough for everyone as well. We don't ever have to think that, you know what, God, you just deal with somebody else. I'm okay for now because he's got more than enough. Amen? And if you don't believe me that he loves, that he loves you, take a look at what he did for you. In Romans 5.8 it says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You know, what he did for us, giving his son, giving his very life for us, there's no greater love than that. In fact, the scripture says in John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And we must be certain to recognize that, that Christ laid down his life for us while we were helpless, while we were sinners. It says that while we were still sinners, we were dead in our trespasses, while we were still messed up and broken and with everything wrong that with, with the fallen man has, he still loved us, he still sent his son. You know, every, every slip of every mistake, every sin that you've, that you've had, God knew about it. Before, he sent his son. He never went, whew, if I'd have known you were going to do that, I would have rethought this. You can't surprise God with that stuff. He knew everything about you. And the truth is that giving your life for somebody is not done flippantly. Did you know that you have a a better chance of having a stranger risk your life for you than someone that knows you? Statistically, you have a better chance of a stranger risking your life for you than someone who knows you. Because there might be some people that that know you, and I'm not talking about your your family and loved ones, but just acquaintances or friends. If they know some bad things about you, they're going to be a little less likely, you know. If they, man, take for example uh, somebody who's a known murderer or something like that, and he's standing on the edge of the train. If you knew he was a murderer and he was about to fall in front of the train, how much more likely are you to save him, to reach out and risk your life for theirs, than if you didn't know anything about him and you just assumed he was an upstanding citizen? You know, when we know stuff about people, particularly bad things about people, that's going to change our opinion of them. It shouldn't, especially as Christians, especially if they're not saved. It's silly to me to think that uh, as Christians we expect non-Christians to act like Christians. We shouldn't expect them that. They're not Christians. Why should they act like it? What we should do is, is tell them about what Jesus did for them and get them saved. Then we can teach them how to act like Christians. But the truth is, yeah, if, you know, if, if, if we knew something bad about somebody, we, we would do less. We would go out of our way less. Think about the people you don't like. How many of you are, are going out of your way even to like help them move or something like that? If you don't like them, you're not doing stuff for them. But God knew everything about you. Even the stuff that your wife doesn't even know. Even the stuff your husband doesn't even know. Even the stuff that you've told nobody. God knows about that. And you know what? Not only did he, he still go to the cross for you, he went to the cross for you in spite of that stuff. He knew everything and he still gave his life. And that's amazing to me. I haven't always been a pastor. It might, might, might surprise you to know that. But God still went to the cross for me. You guys know who Mr. Moody is? This is something that he said, He's a, he was an evangelist. He said, the great trouble is that people take everything in general and do not take it to themselves. That's another problem that we have as we, we look at this as a, as a general thing and we don't take it to heart that Christ died for you individually. But he says that we do not take it to themselves. He says, suppose a man should say to me, Moody, there was a man in Europe who died last week and left $5 million to a certain individual. Well, I say, I don't doubt that. It's rather a common thing to happen. And I don't think anything more about it. But suppose he says, but he left the money to you. Then I pay attention. I say, to me? He says, yeah, he left it to you. And I become suddenly interested. I want to know all about it. So we are apt to think Christ died for sinners. He died for everybody and for nobody in particular. But when the truth comes to me that eternal life is mine and all the glories of heaven are mine, I begin to be interested. I was D.L. Moody that said that. Isn't that the truth? I think we need to do a better job of letting people know that Christ died for them. Not just in Christ died for sinners, but for, for you individually. If you were the only one that was going to receive salvation, God would have still went to the cross for you. Because he loves every single one of us so much. There's a Hasidic uh, story in uh, The Hasidic is a branch of Judaism that tells of a great celebration in heaven after the Israelites are delivered from the Egyptians at the Red Sea and the Egyptian armies are drowned and the angels are cheering and dancing and everyone in heaven is full of joy. Then one of the angels asks the archangel Michael, Where is God? Why isn't God celebrating? And Michael answers, God is not here. He is off by himself weeping. You see, many thousands were drowned today. You know, God doesn't want a single person to perish. Not a single one. Because he loves us all that much. Next, as part of our culture, we need to recognize that we need to be born again. You know, Christianity is not a, a lifestyle movement. It's not a a, a, a a habitual movement. It's not a, a, a the, the things that we do. But it's actually a change that happens inside of us. In John 3:3 3, 3, it says, "Jesus answered him, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." You know, the, the Greek word here used for being born again is, is "from above," is what it means. And this one is born from above." And that's referring to a spiritual birth. See, that's the problem that Nicodemus had when Jesus was, was talking to him, is, is Jesus was thinking in the natural. And if you try to, to work that through in your mind in the natural, yeah, it's not going to work. Being born again is going to be extremely uncomfortable, at least for one person, <laughs> the mom more than the kid. But that's the way Nicodemus was thinking. He's like, you know what, this doesn't make sense, Jesus. How can one be born again? But we know now that Jesus was referring to the spiritual birth. You have to be born again. You have to be made brand new. And this has nothing to do with your performance. Even if you perform perfectly, you won't make it into heaven. You still need to be born again. And how many you know that's a good thing? That's, that's a real good thing. You know, our, our, first, our first instinct, especially for someone that's not a Christian, is they go, why do I have to be held responsible for something else? Why can't I just do it? It's because they're still under the impression that they can be good enough. We all, we all know that you can't be good enough there's no way to be good enough but because we're made brand new we can become born again we can trade our life for jesus you know that that the scripture says that that we were crucified with him the old man was dead and buried that's what the, the picture of baptism is, is, is the, the old man being dead and buried, it's submerge, submerged under water. But when we come out, it's newness of life. We have Christ's life inside of us, and that's what being born again is. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's why when when, when we're ministering to people and we're trying to tell them about Jesus, they begin to think, man, if, if God knew the stuff that I did, if he knew who I was, he would never have me. But they don't recognize that if they accept Jesus, they're made brand new. The past is put behind them. Their sins are as far as the east is from the west. They're made brand new. And it's Jesus that does it inside of them. That's not anything that they've done. You see, that's the thing about just having your behaviors changed, just by living a little better. It's like taking a, a car. I've been out looking for, I was thinking about looking at buying a new pickup truck when I was out looking at them, and there's a lot of, you know, I'm surprised at how many of these mid two thousand Chevys are being sold on car lots that have t- over 200,000 miles are still being sold. You know, and they can take these cars, they can, they can clean them up. Okay. Actually, the lot guy told me he just sold a Dodge that had 674,000 miles on it and sold that truck. Can you believe that? I don't know if I'd buy it, but man. But the truth is, you can take one of them old trucks and you can clean them out real good and you can put a brand new paint job on them and you can, you can look at them and they can just look Pristine. But how many know if somebody takes an early 2000 truck and makes it look pristine and tries to sell it as a 2016 brand new truck, we're going to call foul. It's not a new truck. It may look good. It may look pretty, but it's not new. But you know what? When you got saved, it wasn't just a paint job. It's not just your behaviors that change. You don't just look better on the outside, but you were made brand new through and through. You're a 2016 model. Don't worry. You stay new. Next year, you'll be a 2017 model. You know what else is great about the new birth, about being born again? You see, birth only involves the future. When you moms had your your first son or daughter, it didn't have a past. Babies are born without past. They only have a future. They have no failures. They have no doubts. They have no anxieties. They have no past. Matter of fact, when Adam was created, he's the only full grown man that was created and never had a past. He didn't have anything to bring him down. He didn't have any guilt. He didn't have any shame. And the same thing with babies no guilt, no shame, nothing holding them back. You know what? When you're born again, the same thing happens to you. You're returned to the state that Adam was in. Your past is done away with, it's wiped away. And you're made brand new. You have no past. See, the reality is is that no man or woman is going to hell for what they've done. They're going to hell because they haven't received Jesus. That's the only reason. Because the things that they've done were paid for by Jesus. If they would just receive it, the worst person, if they would just receive Jesus, they would be made brand new. They are in Christ. They're a new creation. Amen? Amen? And that's what we believe. That's the culture of this church. When you get saved, you are brand new. And that's how we want to view people. You know, Paul said that I don't desire to know anybody except for Christ in them. And that's how we see people. It doesn't matter about your past or what you've done. If you've been born again, you are brand new. And we're going to look at you with with the eyes that God would look at you and just see Jesus. Amen. In Romans 5.10 it says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. To reconcile something is to settle and bring into agreement or harmony. It's kind of like a, a bank register. When you go to, to reconcile your bank register, you're making sure it equals what the bank says you have, Right? So basically what God did when he sent his son is he made, a, he made a deposit into our spiritual checking account. And he balanced our spiritual checkbook. We, were, we had a huge deficit. One that we could never repay. But God reconciled us by the death of his son. He paid for our sins. Now, How many know that's good news that our sins is paid for? How many know that that wouldn't have been enough? If just your sins were forgiven it wouldn't have been enough. Because you know what would happen? You would just sin again. You would just do something again. You, there would be no change. Your, your deficit would just keep on increasing. That's actually what happened with before Jesus, when the law came, as they were sacrificing for sins and they were clearing up their sins. But, I mean, you know, they had to do... A sin, I mean, they were given sacrifices all the time. It wasn't once and for all. They were they must have ran out. It wasn't good enough because they had to sacrifice again because their sins were being forgiven, but then they were creating another balance. Forgiveness of sins is not enough. And thank God that, that Jesus didn't stop there. He died for our sins to pay for them, but then he rose again to give us life. Not only were we were reconciled by his death, but now that we are reconciled, we are then saved by his life. If God was willing to die for you, to show that amount of love when you were a sinner, how much more so now that you have been justified? He was willing to die for you while you were an enemy. But now that we're justified, how much more so would that love go? You know, to be sure, there is a wrath to come. There are those who don't know Jesus that are going to stand before God and and face the wrath of God. And the Scripture says that they're actually storing up wrath for themselves. And the only way to get rid of it is to receive Jesus. But I want you to know that as a believer, you're not subject to that wrath. And John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 8 1 says, Therefore, there is, I'm sorry, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're reconciled. We've been given newness of life and we pass out of judgment. Amen? We're also forgiven and free. And this is an important distinction. Most people understand that Jesus died for your sins and that you're forgiven. It's the freedom part that many of us have a problem with. In Acts thirteen thirty-eight through 39 it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Forgiveness is, is great, and it's necessary. Our sins needed to be forgiven, but freedom is the difference. You know, we are free from sin, but not free to sin. You know, when we get saved, Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, and and our sins are forgiven, and that's great news. And unfortunately, there's been some teachings that swing the pendulum so far to the one side, there's so much grace that that people think they can live however they want to live. And God doesn't care because you're forgiven. But the truth is that Jesus didn't go to the cross so you could do what you want. He went to the cross so you could be free. Finally be free from that sin and bondage that was holding you down. In Romans 7.15, when Paul was speaking about the old man before Jesus, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. You know, if you're not born again, if you're not made brand new, then... You can try not to sin all you want, but you'll, even if you want to live right, you're going to end up doing those things. But in Jesus, you are finally free to do the things that are godly. Grace is not licentiousness, but we're actually made free. And that's the part that as Christians we have to become aware of, that when you're made brand new, you're finally given the ability to live the life that God called you to live. You finally have the power, the ability, the opportunity to live without sin. So you say, Pastor Wayne, you think that a Christian can live without sinning? Absolutely. We can live without sin. I also recognize that most of us won't because this is something that's hard to get a hold of. The truth is that it's difficult to, to, to walk in this truth that we are free completely from sin. Jude 1.24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to keep us from stumbling if we'll keep our eyes on him. And the problem is, is oftentimes our eyes drift a little bit. We become distracted. But the reality is, is that when Jesus died on the cross for you, as soon as you received him, you were made brand new. And the power that sin had over you was completely broken. I used to work in a restaurant, and I'd work with the people, and I'd try to tell them about Jesus, and they're like, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to lose the freedom. They thought they were losing the freedom to do whatever they want. And what they meant by that is they wanted to go out drinking and smoking and fooling around with, with, with the girls and guys. And, and they said, I want to be free to do that stuff. And I don't want my, my freedom taken away. But the thing that they didn't realize is they weren't free. So I used to tell them, I said, you think you're so free now? Go a week without doing any of it. If you're free to do what you want, go a week without doing it. Go a week without smoking, without drinking. You know what? None of them could do it because they weren't free. It's not until you get born again that you're finally free from all those things. Amen? We also find that in Jesus that we are made complete. In Colossians two ten through 12, it says, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The New American Standard translate this in other translations, not filled with him, but it says you have been made complete in him. And did you know that completeness completeness is not reliant on how you feel? How many in this room have at times not felt complete? I know I have. How many know that it doesn't matter how you feel? The scripture says you're complete in him. Matter of fact, our feelings will oftentimes lie to us. We also find here that We were circumcised for the circumcision made without hands. You know, the the law circumcised the flesh. But grace is the circumcision of the heart. That old heart of stone was cut out of you and replaced with a heart of flesh. Scripture says that we, we died with Him, we were buried with Him in baptism, and then we were raised with Him. How? Through faith. Our suffering and pain and death that we deserved was dealt with with him on the cross the scripture says we died with him you know what the truth is that that all people are sinners there is none that measure up and the truth is is that the the wages of sin is death and that's what's owed but it says that by faith we died with him and then we were raised again with newness of life you know, there's uh, people, I think it's the, the Philippines have uh, the men take this trail and they flog themselves like Jesus. They're reenacting the walk of Jesus with this cross. And they, they flog themselves with bone and sharp whips. And the, the Christians of that area try their best to try to teach them that's not necessary. But they somehow have it in their head that they have to be punished. They have to, to take the suffering on themselves. And the truth is, the only reason that you have to take the suffering and punishment and death on yourselves is if you don't get saved. But with Jesus, he did it for you. Amen? We also need to understand that in Jesus, we are pure and we are perfect. This is a tough one for people to get a hold of because we tend to not look at the scriptures, but we tend to look at our lives. In Titus 2.14, it says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. If anyone wants to say that I'm not pure, then we're, we're basically saying that, that God failed somehow. But the scripture says that you were purified, not for your own doing, not anything that you did, and God didn't do it for you necessarily. He did it for himself. He purified you so that he could have relationship with you. This was for him. Because if we were not purified, if we were not made perfect, we couldn't be in fellowship with God. Darkness can have no part of the light. Amen? And in Hebrews ten twelve through 14, it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know, when Jesus sat down, he was basically saying it was finished. If there was still work to do, Jesus wouldn't have sat down. But when the work was done, he sat down at the right hand of God. And it says, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has what? Perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. You have been made pure and perfect in Christ. Just like we said a little while ago, sometimes you may not feel complete. You may not feel perfect. You may not feel pure, but it doesn't matter what you feel. The Scripture says that you are made complete. The Scripture says that you are purified. The Scripture says that you've been perfected for all time by His sacrifice. The main reason we have problems with that is because we don't always live like we're perfect. We don't always live like we're pure. And the problem with that is, is because we don't always understand, like we saw here, that we're free. We don't have a true revelation of that. But as soon as you understand what Christ has done inside of you, you can finally begin to live how he intended you to live. You want to know what the greatest proof that you are pure and that you are perfect is? God lives inside of you. If you weren't perfect, if you weren't pure, he couldn't take residence inside of you. It would be impossible. Darkness has no part in the light. And the truth is, we are his possession. We're not our own. And he bought us with a price. It was for him. He said he did it for himself. And you want to know what the natural reaction is to being made brand new is? To begin living out who you are. Anybody ever seen the Matrix? Anybody, you guys, you guys seen the movie The Matrix? Man, well, this one's going to fall flat. <laughs> All right, I'm going to need you guys to go watch that movie real quick, and we'll just wait. <laughs> Basically, it's the story of a, of a of a hero in this movie, and he's the the chosen one, and he doesn't believe it. He refuses to believe it until about halfway through the, moment, the movie, you know, he has that, that great moment where he realizes who he is and he steps up and begins to save the day. But the question I ask is, was he any different then from when he was in the beginning of the movie? No, he was still who he was. He was still the chosen one. He just didn't feel like it. He didn't act like it. But nothing changed. And the same is true for us. Sometimes we may not feel like it. We may not act like it. But the truth is, if you've received Jesus in your heart, then you are perfect and pure and holy, whether you feel it or not. We start talking about sacrifice. I mentioned a little bit earlier, the Jews used to sacrifice continually. But Christ did it for all time with a single sacrifice for sins. The Jews sacrifices covered them for a brief time, but Jesus' sacrifice covers you for all time. Some people wonder that, all right, Jesus died for my sins when I got saved, but what happens if I, if I sin after I get saved? Jesus paid for those too. The question I have to ask you is, when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins were future sins? All of them. Unless some of you guys are way older than I think. <laughs> But the truth is, all of our sins were future sins when Jesus died. And all of them have been paid for, one-time sacrifice for all time. We also need to understand that it's a free gift as well. In Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 3.21-24 through 24, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, a gift is something that's given voluntarily. Without payment in return. As to show favor towards someone, an honor or an occasion, or to make a gesture of assistance. It's like a present. We all know what a gift is. When you give a gift to your to your, your children for their birthday, you don't expect payment in return. The next definition I read for it is it's something that's bestowed or acquired without any particular effort by the recipient. Without its being earned, you know i 've heard some people say that that salvation is is completely a choice of god that that uh, the only people that are going to be saved are the are the elect, the chosen one that gods have chosen to be saved and and those that are are not elect it doesn 't matter what they do they can 't be saved because and their argument is that if it's salvation is by faith, then faith is a form of works, and therefore the scripture says that it's not by works. Now, I have a problem with that because whenever you, 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 you take a gift, you get a gift, you have to receive it. Like I, I, I demonstrated earlier with my wallet, even if I give you something, you have to come take it from my hands. You have to take possession of it. You have to receive it. And that goes with any gift if you don't receive it, if you don't walk up to the person that's giving to you and take it from their hands, then you've not received it, even though it's yours rightfully, correct? Now, if that were to be the case, if somebody were to walk up here and take my wallet, would any of us argue that uh, they earned that by making the, the short trip to the front of the room? No. None of us would argue that. Salvation is a free gift, and we receive it by faith. You have to believe God is who He says He is, and He'll do what He says He'll do. But that's not works. That is how we receive it. And there's nothing that you can do to earn it. You cannot go to church enough. You cannot give enough. You cannot read your Bible enough. You cannot help enough people across the streets. You cannot help enough people move. You cannot live right enough to do it yourself, to earn it from God. There are so many people that think that they have to make themselves right with God before they come to church. Anybody ever heard that? I can't go to church. If I walk in, the whole place will catch on fire. I just got to get right with God first before I come in. But the truth is, you can't get right with God without his help, without receiving that free gift. And the truth is, is that God is no respecter of persons. He says there's no distinction All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift. And it's available to everybody. The Scripture says that God doesn't wish any to perish. We just have to receive that free gift by faith. And we have to be very careful that we're not letting traditions and and works get in the way, thinking that we somehow have to earn it. Because, to be honest with you, it's very easy to let that thinking slip into your head. And I'm sure we've all done it from time to time. When we go, man, things just aren't going right. It must be because I'm not reading my Bible enough or I'm not doing something enough. But that's scary thinking because we don't receive God's love or His grace or His mercy based on what we do. That's putting the cart before the horse. We do those things because God has given us grace and mercy. We spend time in His presence. We read our Bible. We live our lives righteously, not because we're trying to earn his gift, but because He's already given us that gift and we're changed on the inside. Amen? In Romans eleven five through 6 it says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You know, mercy is not getting something that you deserve. But grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is what God does by not putting that punishment of sin and death onto each and every one of us. He was merciful in not making us pay the price. But where grace comes in is not only are we forgiven, not only is that paid for by somebody else, but grace is where he gave us the new life, that we're finally free from that bondage of sin and death. And the scripture is very clear. If it was based on what you did, it would no longer be grace. It would no longer be the free gift. And like I, I was mentioning earlier, there, there are people that, that think, man, why am I being being upheld to somebody else's uh, uh, failure? Why You know, because we all know, that we've all heard that it doesn't matter even if you live perfectly from day one, because of the, the fall of Adam, we're still held under the bondage of sin and death. And people would argue, well, why am I being held to, to what somebody else did thousands and thousands a year ago? Years ago. <laughs> and they want to know, why am I being held to that standard? But it's because they don't recognize that, one, they can't live a perfect life. And two, you know, they want to say, well, what if I'm living good enough? And they say, what if I never sinned? Well the truth is you have sinned. And if it wasn't if it wasn't for the fact that all of Adam's sins passed on to us, then it wouldn't, and one man passed on death to all of us, then one man couldn't give us life. By one man we were given death, and by one man we were given life. So because we're held responsible for the one man's fall. Jesus, as one man, can be held responsible for all of our failings. Amen? And it's a free gift. It's grace. And because of that, we have no reason to boast. We have no reason to say that I was good enough. And that's why God's doing this. He's, he's doing it for everybody. You know, athletes have a reason to boast. When they, when they compete, they work hard, they, they run, they get in shape, and they do well. And even the Jews had cause to boast because their, their, their salvation was completely based on works. But I thank God that we don't have a cause to boast. I thank God because the truth is, I, I, I can take a look at my own life, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not unique, is that I don't have a life to boast about. So I thank God that he gives it as a free gift and he did it for me and he did it for you, every single one of you in this room, without expecting anything in return. Amen? And we're going to end here. In Acts eight thirty six through 37 it says, As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then in Acts 16, 30-31, it says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. You'll notice that I use the New American Standard Version for this one because, for whatever reason, the English Standard Version decided not to put this verse in the Bible. So you'll notice it's in brackets because not all the ancient manuscripts have this particular one in them. Um, but the reason I don't have a problem with it, even if it's not in every single ancient manuscript, is because it's not a brand new idea set by itself. We can see in other scriptures that believing is what makes you saved. For those of you who have heard me speak before, you'll know that I, that I, that I tell you that baptism in those days was primarily the same thing that we do for an altar call. We do an altar call. We ask people that if, if anybody would like to know that Jesus Christ, come up and we'll pray for him. But back then, they just brought him up, baptized him, and called it a day. That was their altar call. So this guy here, the eunuch says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart. And then here it's the, the, uh, the jailer says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And this is when Paul was in prison. And it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. To receive the free gift of God, we just have to believe. We receive it by faith. We believe that he died for us. We believe that he paid the penalty for us. And we believe, most importantly, that he rose again, that we would have newness of life. It's our belief, it's our faith, it's how we receive this free gift. And that's, as we've gone over this this morning, the the first of our, our seven parts of who we are as a church. is this. This is who we are. We're a people who receive salvation by faith. The grace of God is given to us by faith. This is not a church where you have to earn your way into God's graces. This is not a church where you have to earn your your way into salvation. And that's the culture of who we are. That's what we're going to teach. That's what we're going to tell people out there. Because one, it's what the scripture says. And two, people need to know. We need to get it out of their heads that, you know, I've got to get right with God before I come to church. No, come to church and you'll get right with God. Amen? So... In the first part of this seven-part series, this is who we are. We're a people who are saved by grace, by faith. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.